you're seated. Open up your copy of the scriptures to Luke chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 45. If you don't have a Bible, there's one there in the seat backs in front of you. Please feel free to grab that. If you don't have a Bible at home, just grab that, take it. It's yours. Uh, we would love to provide that as a gift to you. And uh, as usual, I forgot to look at the page number. Page 879. The day I look at the page number and preach on the same day beforehand, y'all know Jesus is about to come back because I, I always forget that. Page 879 on those Bibles there in the seat backs. But Luke chapter 19, verse 45. We're going to continue on in the series we've going through Luke, and today's kind of a pivotal passage. Some things change in kind of the narrative, but we're going to continue what we've already been reading and singing um, from Jesus' triumphal entry, and Joe preached that uh, back on Palm Sunday when we celebrate that event, so I encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon uh, if you're unfamiliar with that event, but we're going to briefly mention that passage and then continue on through the scriptures today. First, I, I think I would be very, very far amiss um, if I didn't start by talking and thinking about um, not just the tragedy this week of the hurricane, but the awe and wonder this week of the eclipse. I hope everybody got a chance to see that. Kids, did y'all get out there? Everybody get all my kids? I talked to most of them this morning. There was um, an amazing event that happened in our, in our presence this week. And I felt like a little kid again watching it. Did any of y'all have that experience? Um, the thing that, that just shocked me, and of course I'm, I am a nerd, I'm going to read all the history of it, and there's a great history and a great mythology surrounding eclipses, um, and multiple times in this mythology, um, the, this, the moon is seen to basically be some kind of force of darkness or almost a, a demon or a dragon, uh, depending on whether it's Chinese, South American, Middle Eastern, Central Asian. But, but there's a darkness, something evil, coming in front of the sun and blocking out the good light. And in, again, multiple of these traditions, the appropriate thing to do is when there is a totality. When, when the eclipse is full, there is to be screaming and shouting, and that scares whatever dark entity is away, and the, the sun is then uncovered, and we have light once again. So I had read all these, and I thought it odd that so many were so similar. Again, different mythologies from all over the world, different people groups, people groups that did not have contact with each other. I thought, this is odd, this, this shouting to ward away the darkness. Because, you know, if you're watching the eclipse, it's going to get darker, darker, darker. Well, just the assumption is, well, it's going to get lighter, lighter, lighter. I mean, it's not that hard to figure out what's going on. But why this mythology of shouting? And then on Monday at, you know, roughly 1.30, I was out with um, my kids' school. Um, we had a big, it was a big event. Um, it's a fairly small school, about 100 students. And so everybody was out there, K through 12, uh, I had Nathan with me. We were looking through a telescope. Everybody else had their goggles—not gog goggles, glasses on—and everybody's excited. It's fun. And in that moment, when the totality hit, and everything started getting just weird. I, I mean, we saw the birds flying. All the stuff started squiggling on the ground, and, and then that just amazing, luminous wildness that came around the moon. Beautiful. And suddenly that mythology made sense to me. 
because as I was standing there with my son looking through the telescope, I hear the high school girls screaming, not because of some mythology, but because of joy. And they were screaming like little bitty girls. I mean, like little, little kid. I mean, they, ah, just shrieking at the awe and wonder of what we were watching happen in front of us. And I remember my son, I was with him. My wife was with my daughter. Um, so I don't, I don't know her exact reaction. But, but my son, my kid, just, I, he just couldn't get it out. He was so excited. And I felt the exact same thing. I mean, this was amazing. It was just breathtaking. And then I remember looking around and seeing all these kids, all these adults, just, wow, that's, okay, I'm going to need my eclipse goggles now. Dr. Fred, I'm coming. Those lights are really bright. You don't want to do that preaching, apparently. Um, but seeing all these people, just say, I'm going to look this way, there's no lights there, staring up at the sky, just jaw drop with smiles and joy. Those kinds of events, we all become little kids again. We get that sense of wonder and that awe and that amazement. As we get older, things start to distract us. The pragmatism of jobs and work and bills it distracts us from that awe and wonder we had of everything as a kid. And I think some of us, I know I have, have lost that awe and wonder and simple, not simplistic, but simple childlike faith in Jesus Christ, the King. We forget Every one of our dreams and, and joys and, and hopes of, of being in that kingdom wherever it was, where everything was right and there was a good king and all of us boys were knights and all the girls were princesses. We forget the joy and wonder and dreams we had as little kids. We forget what it's like to wish for a king. A king who can take care of it. This passage today, it's a series of short stories. The triumphal entry we've already read. Jesus crying over Jerusalem, wishing them to come back. And I'm going to read now Luke 19, starting in verse 45. We're actually going to go into a little bit of Luke chapter 20. And we're going to read some little snippets of Jesus during his last week. We're going to see the king in action, calling us to awe and wonder of him. Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Then, and then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house will be a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did find, not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. In chapter 20, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? And who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them also. I also ask you a question. Now, now tell me, 
Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where he came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We're going to break this text, this sermon down into three segments. The, the, the what, the so what, and the now what. Just simply, what does it say? And we're going to go through each of these little stories and talk about what has happened in the text. And then we're going to say, all right, that's what happened. So what, what do we need to understand? What do we need to know? And then based on that, well, how does that change life for us? So again, this past spring, Joe preached on the triumphal entry. But what I want us to make sure we don't miss, just very quickly in review, is that Jesus is being proclaimed king. And Jesus is not some passive actor in this. He sent disciples out and said, hey, you're going to go into village. Here's where a donkey is. Here's what to say. And just all of a sudden, the guy's going to have absolute knowledge of what's going on. And this miraculous event, it seems so simple, getting a donkey. But Jesus knows and has planned exactly what will happen. And it says, then they set him on the donkey. He walks in and everyone's singing and shouting. We need to make sure we see Jesus is king. We forget this. Jesus is king. But we also need to see Jesus didn't come as a political king to rule everything in that day. He was coming twice. The first time, meek and humble to save people. And the second time he comes, he will come as a victorious king. The first time he came riding a donkey. And the second time, it says he will come riding a giant white horse. A, a horse of victory, a power, a strength compared to this meek, mild donkey. But Jesus didn't come as a political king like we would expect. And yet... He has authority over all kings. The scripture says, Paul says this, there is no authority which has not been given by heaven. In other words, all those kings that we see, all those rulers, whether they be good or bad, God has allowed them that temporary place of authority. And they are ultimately accountable to him for how they handle that authority. I want you to flip one time with me here just very quickly. John chapter 18, John chapter 18, this is just a few days after this has happened. John chapter 18 in verse 33. And Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate, uh, one of the governing authorities over this area. And this man who has the authority at a simple word to condemn Christ to death is in awe at how Jesus handles himself. Listen to this. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. So Pilate said to him, so you are a king. But Jesus answered, 
you say that I am a king. In other words, your very questions have proved you see my authority. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? The most powerful man in the land. Listen to the questions of life from a prisoner about to be condemned to death. That's power. That's true authority. Even in Jesus' weakest hour, he's still in command. But the passage goes on, and Jesus weeps for Jerusalem, which won't get this message. And then in verse 45, as he comes in, he enters into the temple. And it says he began to drive out those who sold what we see happening from the other Gospels, if you want to look it up this week, you can write down John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22 is the most complete account. Um, but Jesus came in and he saw people selling potential sacrifices. He saw them selling animals to be sacrificed. And he saw these tables that were set up. And what the, the people did was they had ancient, useless Jewish coinage. Um, it was from a previous kingdom that had been defeated. But these coins didn't have any vile images like of Caesar who proclaimed himself to be God. And so they would take the vile, evil money that actually was worth something and give you useless, good Jewish money that you could give in the offering plate or the offering box. And so people would come in and have to buy the good Jewish money, give the money in the offering, they would take the box back and sell it to somebody else. And so it was this cycle basically to, uh, you know, up everybody's offering a little bit. And people were making huge sums of money off of this. And then they were taking advantage of people charging exorbitant prices if you weren't a farmer and you didn't have a sacrifice to bring. And this place that was supposed to be an, a, a picture and a symbol of who Jesus was, the sacrifice for our sins, the glory of God here on earth, this beautiful place that had a beautiful purpose was becoming corrupt and was not preaching the message that God had intended. And these places were set up in the very places that Gentiles, people who were not Jewish, the foreigners who didn't know God could come and hear the message of God. So Jesus, says in John, a little more bluntly, grabbed a whip, an angry Jesus scared those animals out of the temple. It says he took the, the tables full of money, dumped them over. So this, this is the equivalent of running into a bank, grabbing the register boxes, shaking them all out, and no one knows whose money is what. People were such in such shock, they didn't do anything. It's like everybody just stood there jaw-dropped. And then they ask, who gave you the authority to do that? That's what happened in the temple. He drove the false messages about God away. Then Luke chapter 20, verse 1, it all kind of comes to a head. Jesus was teaching. And he was preaching the gospel. So he's sharing with people the good news. And if you're not familiar, we use that word gospel a lot around here. 
What it means is that Jesus came. He is all of God. And yet he became fully man. He is God the Son. Become human. Come here to earth. We celebrated at Christmas. But he grew up to become a man. And as we've been reading through in our Bible studies at nine, he did miracles. He taught. And he showed us who God is. He, he made statements like, if you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. He revealed who God was. And this Jesus lived an absolutely perfect life. He fulfilled all the demands of the law. You see, God's perfect. We know that. I mean, he's God. But his demand of us as people is perfection. If he allowed imperfection, if he allowed sin into his presence, it wouldn't be a very pleasant place anymore. We know what a world full of sin is like. There are hurricanes. There are earthquakes. There's suicide. There's broken marriages. So God's requirement of the law is perfection, sinless perfection. And Jesus completely fulfilled that demand of the law. He satisfied what God requires for me and for you. And then he took all of our sin, all of our wrong things upon him later this week uh, that we're reading about. And then he died on the cross for those sins. He rose up on the third day, resurrected, bodily resurrected, not a ghost, not a spirit. His body resurrected from the grave. And then 40 days later, he ascended to heaven where he now stands as king. And he calls every single person of every single nation, every single tribe, every single tongue to come to him as savior in faith and repentance, to trust him and to turn from their sins and their ways to him. So we don't come here as a, a group of Christians to say you need to be better, you need to do this, you need to be like this. We come here as a group of Christians to proclaim to you and to ourselves over and over because we forget that Jesus has already been good for you. Jesus has already fulfilled all the righteousness that's required. And he has taken all your sins and all my sins. I'm not up here because I'm the best. I'm up here probably because I'm the worst. Christ has taken my sin. He's done the same for you and he calls you to trust him to forgive those sins. Repent to turn from our ways to his and follow him. That's the gospel. So one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came up to him and said, tell us by, whose, by what authority you do these things. Who says you get to come into the temple and stir everything up? And there were hundreds, if not thousands of people following Jesus at this point. They'd seen the celebration that came about on that palm very first Palm Sunday, when all the people were celebrating Jesus and King. And they come to him and just flat out answer, who gives you the right to act like a king? Who gives you the right to rule? And what they wanted Jesus to say is what he said on several occasions. I and the Father are one. In other words, I have this right because I'm God. That's my temple. As a matter of fact, 
when Jesus cleanses the temple in the John account that I told you all about in John 2, Jesus even says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. But he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about his very body. You see, Jesus was the whole point. And they knew that. And they knew that's what Jesus said of himself. And so they were trying to trap him in public and proclaim that you have blasphemed and are worthy of death because they wanted to kill him. It says one of the reasons they were wanting to kill him and, and all the kids we talked about this morning over in our kids area is that Jesus had raised a man from the dead. His name was Lazarus. He'd been in a tomb four days. Jesus walks to the tomb, says, move the stone. They say, you're crazy, he's going to stink. Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, in a very funny way, as we talked about, hobbles out of the tomb as he's bound up in mummy clothes. And everybody can go ask Lazarus, what happened? I was dead. But you're not dead anymore. And this irrefutable proof of Jesus' power was in their face and they wanted to get rid of this guy who was causing them all the trouble, who was questioning their authority as the religious establishment. And Jesus says, all right, you want to play games? We'll play games. Where's John the Baptist from? Because he seemed to have a lot of authority too. As a matter of fact, it's described as all of Jerusalem was going out to follow him. The Jewish people said, we, we, we are in trouble here. Because they didn't recognize John. And John openly said of Jesus, this is the Lamb of God, you should go follow him. We can't say he was of God. Because rightfully so, Jesus would have said, well, do what he says if he's of God. But if they said he wasn't of God, all these people who were so joyous over John's ministry and the preaching that John preached would have turned and attacked them. So they just say, they use the good, smart answer. We, we just don't know. It's a great religious answer, right? You know, I'm not sure about Jesus. You know, I've heard of him. He's a good man. I, I've heard of Jesus and I've heard of God. All that, the Bible, that's great stuff. Not sure about that. I'm not sure if it's for me. You hear yourself in that? Well, this scripture, I'm not sure that that really applies to this situation. Boy, how many times have I said that one? I know what I'm saying. I know what it says. I, I don't know. It's that spiritual, super spiritual ignorance. And Jesus says, okay, you want to play games? I'll play better. I'm not going to tell you where I'm from either. Jesus was in control. As that week went on, Jesus would be betrayed. But ironically, right before the betrayer betrays him, they're eating dinner. And he says, hey, somebody's going to betray me. And everyone says, who? Well, let me dip this bread and give it to somebody. It's that guy. And he does it. Hours later, Judas betrays him. And then Peter has a fit during the act of Jesus' arrest, pulls out a sword, 
quacks off the ear of one of the soldier's servants. And Jesus, this is, I love this part. Jesus tells everybody, stop. They're arresting Jesus. There's a battle, you know, Peter's going crazy with the sword. He's, you know, we got Barney Fife going out there. And, and Jesus just said, stop. And Peter stops. That's understandable. The Roman soldiers don't do anything. They listen to Jesus as Jesus heals this man. And they arrest him, carry off. He's tried in unfair trials. We've read a section of that already. And then he's crucified. He dies on a cross, as he said he would do many times. But then he rises again. He didn't stay dead. The grave itself could not hold Jesus. So that's what this text says. But now we want to go on to the so what. What does all this mean? And I just want to draw one conclusion, very simple from this. It's that Jesus has ultimate authority because he is God the Son. As Christians, we believe in the Trinity. We believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All the time, always has been. There, there is distinction in their persons, but they are one essence. That's how the old creeds have said it, that we certainly hold to. Jesus is one essence with the Father, but a distinct person. So it's not that the Father became Jesus. The Father is the angry God of the Old Testament, and Jesus now comes in love, and now we have those. That's not Christianity by far. That was condemned as heresy. God the Father sent His very Son. It's John 3.16. For God, meaning the Father, so loved the world that He gave His only Son. And the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity that came down and rested on Jesus. We see this in Jesus' baptism. See, Jesus, God the Son, here on earth, He goes to be baptized. He walks in the water. As He comes out, there's a voice from heaven. And it's God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And at that same time, the Holy Spirit comes down and rests and stays on Jesus. Jesus is God. He's God of very God, as the creed put it. He's glorious. He's powerful. He is all. Colossians says it this way. That He made everything. And everything is for His glory. Everything was made by Him and for Him, is the exact text. And it says, and He's the head. In other words, He is in charge. And it says that everything, in everything, he would be exalted. So we need to remember who Jesus is. We, we've lost that childlike awe of a Jesus who's bigger than us. We think of Jesus as this good teacher, and he certainly was that. We think of Jesus as this loving kind Savior, and He certainly is that. But Jesus Christ is God the Son. Jesus Christ is also a victorious ruler. The Old Testament describes Him in the phrase the Lion of Judah. He's powerful. He is big. 
and He is in charge. We don't need to forget who Jesus is. Both as the little kid awes at the king and wants to be part of his kingdom. But also, as the wise adult says, be careful should you defy the king. We need to remember there's accountability. There is a day of judgment coming when Jesus' king will call for an account. Remember Joe's sermon last week, right before this? The king will call for an account. And that will be a scary day for many of us. So what do we do? Now what? Well, this is where the title of the sermon comes from. That's mine too. And I know we shouldn't use bad grammar, but it works. The so what is, Jesus says, that's mine. He has authority over everything. He has authority over our knowledge. Remember the famous philosopher Descartes? I hope everyone has read that in high school. If not, you should. Amazing Christian. But he was wrong. He, he starts his foundation of knowledge with the famous phrase, ego armi, I think, therefore, I am. You see, Descartes said, the reason I know anything is because I'm thinking. He was a very smart man. If I'm thinking, that means I have to exist, therefore, I am. He started everything with his thought, and he develops this whole philosophy, this, this, this whole um, understanding of knowledge is, is based on him and based on you too because you can think so you know the same things but God turns that on its head he says I am he doesn't need to say I think therefore I am he just says I am God is the almighty and he is the source of knowledge. You see, in the scripture it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Some of us, we, we think we're smart. We think we have all this information that previous generations didn't. We, we think we've thought about things better than others. And we come to these conclusions that it ought to be this way and that, and we should do this, and it's okay for me to do this or that. It's based on our thinking. But when Jesus comes, he says, no, that's mine too. Your mind, your thinking, your knowledge, I have authority over that. I'm bigger and I'm smarter. You see, Jesus says, he made everything. And he holds everything together. That most brilliant physicist that might be out there who thinks he understands how the universe works but might leave God out of it does not understand because Jesus says, no, I'm holding the molecules together. The reason this exists still is because I do it. So how does that get practical? Well, that gets very practical. When Jesus says this is sin, 
where this is the truth, that's it. When His Scripture proclaims, here is the truth, ours isn't to figure out and interpret and make a judgment, was this accurate or not, or can we do better, or, or do we need to redefine? It's, yes, Lord. There's an old preacher's saying that says there's no such thing as the phrase, no, Lord. Because if you're saying no, you don't understand what Lord means. See, Jesus is in charge. And so whatever you think, you might know more than what he has said. I tell you, not in arrogance, but because I care with you, you're wrong. And he's right. But you see, Jesus says that's mine too when it comes to so many other things. Perhaps the hardest one for me is my schedule and my time. You know, you can always get more money. There's another paycheck coming. There's another company to be started. But you can never get more time. It's so, so precious. And so often, I want to sit and do what I want to do. I want my book. I want my wood shop. And you know what? The discipline comes to say, no, you need to invite your neighbor over and talk with them because their daughter is being crazy right now. And it's really hard. That time when you're running in and it's been the longest day. <laughs> Hi, neighbor. <sighs> See, God says, that's my time. Remember what the scripture says? We're to redeem the time. We're to buy back the time because the days are evil. Jesus says of your time and of your schedule, that's his too. And so if your schedule is such that it eliminates him, you can't faithfully gather with the church. You can't teach your kids the ways of the Lord. You can't take time for prayer. You can't take time to read the Scripture daily. Your understanding of time is messed up. And this is where, it, I'm, man, this hits home. Because I love quiet in my house. That, like, I just love, it's a retreat to me. But that's not how God sees it. He sees every one of your moments as a moment of mission, in a moment of following Him. He claims that time. He claims that time when your son's out there playing soccer and you really just you could sit and have a moment of quiet. No, that's His time too. Talk to that other dad that's sitting there that doesn't know how his family's going to live another week. That's His too. Your time, your schedule, it's His too. Money. I know, preacher talking about money. We don't do it too often. That's his too. I remember when I first got married. I was serving in a church, uh, not this one, in another state, and I wasn't making a whole lot of money. <laughs> it, was, it was pitiful. I, I look back, I don't know how we made it every week. There were a lot of weeks where I had to decide, am I going to buy this or that? Because I can't have both. I can't pay the bill and, you know, buy the food. God provided. He was faithful and all of that. 
but it was so hard to write the check. And I know most of us don't have checks anymore, but then it was write the check to give that offering and tithe. That was so hard. And, and when I knew I needed to be generous, there are so many easy excuses. But, but God, I truly do need this money. And that's absolutely true. That's the, that's the catch. But God calls us to be generous. He calls us to tithe. He calls us to give offerings. God says it's mine. We need to remember Jesus is king. And if the king calls for your money, he can't do anything about it. Jesus says it's mine. How about your passions? I, I know, and well, and I learned today, y'all will be proud of me, I learned today football starts today. Um, so I didn't learn afterwards when everyone was talking about it the next day. I'm, I'm like ahead. I know there's going to be a football game this afternoon. And I know it's the weird-shaped brown one, too. Um, you know, it's the weird-shaped brown ball. Um, like I'm, I'm pretty proud of that, that, that you, you, you laugh about that. But this morning, I, I was pretty proud when I knew there was going to be a game this afternoon when someone mentioned it. Um, football's great. I'm lying. It's not. But football's great. <laughs> And racing, NASCAR, that's great. There you go, there you go. And we'll get some my sci-fi and fantasy novels. and that's, All that, it's great. Woodworking, I love that. I love art. Vacate, it's great. Whatever it is, sports, a team, a hobby. That's great. But that's God's too. You don't own that. That time is not yours. It's Christ. And I'm not saying we shouldn't participate in any of those things. Please don't hear that. But I am saying when that passion takes the place of Christ and when suddenly instead of Christ ruling your heart, the desire for whatever that is rules your heart it's sin you're proclaiming a false gospel you're proclaiming that christ isn't king this is you're worshiping a false god instead of worshiping christ you're worshiping whatever that hobby pastime passion might be that's his too that's his too your family you know family is so so important but it's not God. The moment your choices for your kids' schooling, your choices for your kids' activities, your choices for your kids' athletics, your choices for your kids' whatever, trumps Christ, your children have gone from beautiful, amazing children to idols. love my kids it's easy to get into the trap that it doesn't matter if it's for the kids it's okay and, and you know what sometimes it's not sometimes our kids need to hear nope we're going to church sometimes our kids need to hear no nope, we're going to stay home tonight and read scripture and talk 
and just be together. I was at a parenting conference this uh, weekend. It was really good. The thing that kept coming up over and over from all these experts is, you know, we tend to protect our kids from adversity and trouble and problems. And you know what we're producing? Kids who don't know how to deal with adversity and trouble and problems. Sometimes we need to deal with hardship as a family. God says that's mine too. Your behavior, your morality, what you watch on TV. There was a, a great pastor, I, I love him dearly, who has just been brutally destroyed over the internet for saying a show that contains graphic nudity and full-out sexual activity on screen isn't healthy for Christians to watch. Guess what? It's not. And this man has just been called every name in the book. God has something to say about your morality. Does your morality get you to heaven? Absolutely not, because we've already failed. We've talked about that. We know the gospel. It's Christ. But let me tell you, if Jesus is king in your life, and you have proclaimed, I trust you, Jesus, I've repented, I have turned from my ways to yours, Jesus has something to say about your morality. And for some of you, that's, that's click, turn it off. Not just for the minute, for the trash that's on there, but, but off. But boy, it hits every one of us. Because that moment when we want to get angry at those lovely traffic lights at Nolensville Road and Rocky Fork, and that guy in the truck shakes his little fist at us with one of those little fingers. And I mean, the, the it's never happened to me, but I've heard. Yeah. My emotions in that moment, those are Jesus's too. He claims right over that moment. It's all of it. Your sexuality. We are in an age where sexuality is your identity. And we preach a very different message as Christians. Sexuality, whatever sexuality that might be, is not your identity. Christ is. So I, I want to proclaim to you, if you're here struggling or your family is struggling with any form of sexuality taking over them, Jesus Christ has a message of hope. And it's that your sexuality gets trumped by his reign as God. And you know how that feels? Miserable at times. You suffer. But Jesus says, that's mine. I created it. And I define the context where it's appropriate. And that's in marriage between one man and one woman for life. And outside of that, it's not yours to play with. That's mine. And that's a hard message to hear. But I want to say to you, if you're struggling 
in the area of sexuality, whether it's pornography, homosexuality, gender issues, whatever, promiscuity. God loves you so much. He even saves us from those issues. You know, there's two kinds of people in this world. There's sexual sinners and there's Jesus. We all need him. But Jesus claims even your sexuality. I can't tell you how many times I've been in marriage counseling or premarital counseling in that case and had people shocked just not knowing that Jesus has a claim on your sexuality. And it matters because Jesus is king. Jesus is king. One last thing. Jesus claims it's mine when it comes to your eternity. And so I would say to you, friends, if you don't know Christ, eternity is Christ. We don't determine the standard. We don't determine who goes and who doesn't to where or where the where is. Jesus has claim over that because he is the eternal forever king. He's God the Son. So my plea to you, my begging to you, is now. Stop trusting whatever you're trusting. Stop hoping in whatever you're hoping in and trust and turn to Jesus Christ. I hope you haven't heard that it's just an easy mamby-pamby say a prayer. No, it's trusting the King of the universe. And some of you may be sitting here and you may have thought you were a Christian for decades. You may be the Sunday school teacher. One of the greatest privileges of my life was leading a deacon to the Lord. He was a dear friend of mine. You may have thought that something that happened, a baptism when you were a teenager, it was just an act and you just got wet. It's going to save you and it's not. But Jesus Christ will. So my begging and my pleading to you today is trust Jesus Christ. Turn from your sins to him. And yeah, he's king. And I hope you haven't got the message that it's all comfortable and easy. <laughs> but it's good. There's a line from one of my favorite books. It's a line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. It's a picture of Jesus and salvation. And it's this picture of, of the lion who's king, whose roar terrifies all, and who is victorious over all his enemies. And as the, the four kids are starting to meet this king, they're scared. It's a lion. And they're scared. That's right, they should be. And they ask, is he safe? And there's a chuckle. No, he's a lion. No, he's not safe. But he's good. So my plea to you today is come to the king. Your comfort's not safe. But he is good. And it's worth it. Let's pray. God, as we come and we sing, 
Lord, I pray that everyone here would respond to you, whether that's in repenting and turning from our sins to you, Jesus, for the first time or the millionth. Jesus, may we proclaim you and sing to you as king because you are the king. And I ask that you would be king of every area of my life this week. Lord, you are whether I want it or not. Lord, I ask that I would submit to that. Father, I pray for my friends here who may not know that you would that you would save them, that you would give them faith to trust in you and turn to you, maybe for that first time. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here who have turned to you as king. Lord, may we act like it this week. May, may you change everything for us. Jesus is that song saying, may we sing to you, King, who is coming to reign. May we give honor and glory to you, Jesus, for you are King. Amen.